0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, a doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Patricia Newman about her new book, Planet Ocean, Why We All Need a Healthy Ocean. A little more than 70% of planet Earth is ocean. So wouldn't a better name for our global home be Planet Ocean? Planet Ocean shows us how to stop thinking of ourselves as existing separate from the ocean and how to start talking, taking better care of this precious resource. Well, Patricia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, it's great to have you here with us today. So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the recent global pandemic, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways
0: that you have gathered from the experience? Oh, well, the pandemic has has changed everything and nothing in terms of how I work and um, I am an author, so I sit at my desk at home and I write alone. So in that respect, the pandemic has changed nothing, but um, it has changed the publishing industry quite a bit because um, originally Planet Ocean was scheduled for fall of 2020 and then pushed to the spring of 2021. So we had an extra six months to fret and worry over, is this book perfect? Um, and then, of course, uh, launching a book during a pandemic took some, um, took some creative thinking. I guess we should put it that way. Uh, We had to do things differently. I I wasn't visiting schools in person. I wasn't visiting conferences and speaking to educators in person. Mm. So we had to get creative about uh, joining the virtual world and figuring out how that could work. And in addition, you know, I my husband was home working. Um, we got a dog during the pandemic, <laughs> so there were a lot of big changes. Actually, my husband is still home working, so there we were not really done with the changes yet. But I think we're we're acclimating. Let's put it that way.
1: Great to hear. Yeah.
0: So can you tell us a
1: little bit more about yourself? Well,
0: a little bit more about myself. <laughs> what would anyone want to know? Um, I was never one of those kids that uh, uh, kept a journal. Um, I started, I tried, I was given diaries as a, as a kid with, you know, fancy little keys that I could open up and protect all my innermost thoughts. But I, I was faithful for a month or so, and then I got busy doing other things. Um I wasn't, I wasn't much of a writer as a kid either, but I was a huge reader. I read everything I could get my hands on. I read, um, fiction. I read nonfiction. I read the backs of cereal boxes. I read magazines. I read everything. And I think that's, uh, that, that sort of carried over all writers are readers, um, first. So I think that, um, carried over. I was a good student. Um, many might call me a nerd, um, and I kind of liked research. I loved researching, even as a kid. I loved, um, I loved writing reports, you know, and, and kind of putting your own spin on things. And I think that's carried over into my nonfiction. One of my favorite books as a kid was Harriet the Spy by Louise Fitzhugh. And I think one of the things I most loved about her was she carried a notebook around with her wherever she went and kept notes in it. And I've adopted that practice as a writer. Every time I start a new book, I open a new notebook, fresh, spanking clean, and I I start taking notes in it and writing down thoughts or drawing pictures of how information should be organized. So I, I think that was carried over. But the thing that really started me out as a writer I went through Cornell University. I wrote tons and tons of, of papers, obviously, but not, no creative writing. And, um, but the thing that started me out was actually my mother-in-law. Um, mm. I would go to the library with my kids, and we would come home with 60 books, a stack of 60 books, the most that the library allowed us to take out. And we would sit during story time, before naps, before bed, and slowly plow our way through them. And my mother-in-law always, when she visited, she sat and listened to story time. And she looked at me one day and she said, Patty, I think you could do this. And, I, you know, I, it, just, it just struck a, a chord with me. And I, I tried and I tried some more and tried some more and learned all I could about the children's publishing industry. I have to say it's one of the hardest jobs I've ever had. But uh, luckily, I've met with some success. And how did you get interested in diving? Well, uh, I guess I've always been somewhat of a writer because I had to do it for school. I had to do it for many different jobs. And that was all nonfiction writing. Most of, of what we do in our daily lives is nonfiction reading and nonfiction writing, Um for For uh, work, but i I realized that even as I was going through Cornell, um, I loved science. And I particularly loved the way that uh, science interacted with practically every aspect of our lives. And I wanted to, I guess I wanted to get kids like me who love to read, excited about the world around them. My first couple of books were actually fiction, but they were based on fact. I wrote a book called Jingle the Brass, which was based on the railroading slang that uh, was popular during the age of steam. And um, so I did a ton of research for that book and uh, finally wrote it and published it. But I think the thing that actually led me to writing science for kids was an article I read in my local newspaper, the Sacramento Bee. I was sitting at my breakfast table one morning, reading the paper, eating my breakfast, and I was flipping through reading headlines. And I came upon this article about graduate students sailing 1,000 miles into the ocean, to study the plastic that was accumulating there, oh, wow. and at that, I know. And at that time, they were the only ones that I had ever heard of. I think they were one of the first to start studying plastic. Everybody had noticed it, but nobody had really performed experiments on it. And there, this was a group of seventeen graduate students um, who were uh, studying to earn their PhDs in various disciplines. And I followed their blog while they were out to sea and they were gone for about 21 days. And I read every single blog every day. And then when they returned to San Diego, they, they started out of the Scripps Institute of Oceanography in San Diego. Uh, I contacted three of them. And while I was reading the blog, I, I had chosen these three women because they studied very different aspects of the sea Uh, Darcy Taniguchi studied phytoplankton and uh, Chelsea Rockman studied the chemistry of plastic and Miriam Goldstein studied uh, the rafting community, all of those little critters that hop aboard things floating in the ocean. And um, I picked them because, like I said, they, they studied various aspects of plastic in the ocean, but also because they were women. And I realized I had a book as soon as they said that they were interested in working with me, because when I work with scientists writing my books, it takes a fair amount of buy-in. They have to, they have to be willing to uh, uh, spend some time with me while I interview them, either in person or over the telephone. Um, they have to read multiple drafts. They have to uh, help work with me and my editor. Um, so and they also uh, work with me and sometimes provide photos as well so it takes a fair amount of buy-in and once they agreed to work with me I knew I had a project that I could sell to an editor and be super excited about as I worked on
1: so your recent book planet ocean concerns the big body of water so how did you stumble across it
0: Well, when I wrote Plastic Ahoy about those three scientists, um, Miriam, uh, Chelsea, and Darcy, I uh, worked with Annie Crawley, who was the photographer aboard their uh, expedition uh, research vessel. And Annie and I became friends, and we stayed in touch and did another book in the meantime called Zoo Zoo Scientists to the Rescue, and uh, throughout Zoo scientists to the Rescue, uh, traveling to all of these different zoos, navigating a blizzard in Denver, we started talking about this idea of uh, a book about the ocean. Annie is a um, a well-respected diver, a women, Women's Hall of Fame diver, as a matter of fact, and she's frequently asked to go on scientific expeditions to document what's happening so she has a lot of experience underwater, both as a diver and um, kind of a citizen scientist, if you will, and a, uh, a filmmaker and photographer. So uh, we knew that we were going to feature her photographs and her video in the book. But what we really started talking about was also maybe including her as a character, be, as a guide across this vast ecosystem. You already mentioned that it's, it's huge, right? So we, we needed a guide and we needed to, um, we needed to sort of split the information into dig- digestible chunks that uh, an elementary school child could um, understand and, most importantly, could relate to, because our book is about connection, our connection to our ocean. So how did you come up with this title? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote, I wrote, um, I wrote the book, and uh, I usually start in the middle of the book. I never write chapter one first because it's the very hardest chapter to write. Uh, it has to sort of summarize um, the themes and and you know what I'm going to say in the book, and I really don't know all of that until I write. So I usually write chapter one last. And I was I was writing chapter one, I I included this line that said, um, uh, you know, the maps in our in our schools, a lot of them are wrong. Uh, they that they tend to make the land masses near the poles look bigger than they are, and you know, with this provocative statement, the maps are wrong. Uh, I went on to say that the uh, our planet is actually seventy percent ocean and only thirty percent land, and it really should be called Planet Ocean. And that was it. That was the title. Mm. Yeah, for sure, and it's it's perfect title, and and you,
1: it makes you think right away.
0: It does. It does make you think right away. The subtitle was actually much harder than the actual title. But once we had the title and we started calling it Planet Ocean, Planet Ocean, Planet Ocean, it just, it was a perfect fit. We knew that that was the title right away.
1: So why was it important to write this book for you right now?
0: Oh, that is a great question. You know, (laughs) uh, the research shows that most kids don't understand, most adults don't understand, that we have only one ocean. Even though we call it different things, we might say the Indian Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean, but it's really only one ocean. It's all connected. Those other boundaries are purely for government, politics, economics. Um, The animals in the sea don't recognize that they're swimming in the Pacific versus the Indian versus the Southern Ocean. They swim wherever instinct tells them to go and kids and kids and and a lot of adults don't understand this. And another thing that uh, many of us don't understand is that what happens in one part of the ocean affects another part of the ocean because it's all connected because the currents from the Arctic flow into the South Pacific because, um, the, um, because the uh, fish in um, one area of the ocean migrate to another area of the ocean. Hmm. So I think that um, that is uh, um, a concept worth exploring with children. Um, And we really wanted to focus on this aspect of connection. There are a lot of books out there that focus on the beauty of the ocean, focus on the problems of the ocean. But there are very few books that do all three. In Planet Ocean, we, of course, focus on the beauty of the ocean because we want readers to care about it. We focus on the problems of the ocean and the science behind those problems because we want readers to understand how human actions impact an ecosystem That is vital to our existence. But most importantly, we focus on this connection and we urge kids to find the connection in their own hometowns. You know, maybe they live on the coast, but maybe they're landlocked. And it's a little more challenging to find your connection to the ocean when you're not next to it. So, you know, look at your watersheds, look at the rivers near you. Where do they go? Uh, Look at the weather around you. What makes that weather? Um, what are you breathing? You're breathing air. Well, the ocean manufactures 50 about 50% of the air that we breathe, even though we're not near the sea. So find that connection and celebrate it through stories and uh, videos and, and photos, which many kids have at the tips of their fingers right on their telephones. So we're, we're encouraging them to speak up for the ocean and become ocean storytellers. Yes. And this aspect has really stood, up, stood out for me. Um,
1: in your book, it's a sort of really immersive experience. So it's not that you're reading about something, you're actually delving into it. Was that your uh, your sort of way to approach it?
0: Yes, exactly. And that was one of the reasons for using um, Annie as a main character in the book, not only because of her vast experience and because her her Photos and video are fantastic, but through Annie and through her her experience with teaching kids to dive, she was able to bring them underwater. Most of us, when we look at the ocean, we see the surface. We look at the pretty sunset. We look at the waves rolling on the beach. Perhaps we look at the beach and all the plastic that's accumulated there. Um, But rarely do we peek below the surface unless we're watching a BBC special. Um, But Annie, with her experience and her uh, photography and uh, filmmaking skills, can take readers below the surface. And another special feature that we've included in Planet Ocean um, is QR codes. And these QR codes, we have about two in each chapter. We have chapters on the Coral Triangle, the Salish Sea in the Pacific Northwest, and um, the Arctic. And there are two QR codes in each chapter. One of the QR codes shows the beauty of that region, just the sheer magnificence and uh, and awe-inspiring scenery and science happening in that area, how the animals support each other. Um, and the other QR code in each chapter shows the problems and um, perhaps offers some suggestions for how we can help fix it so what kind of issues do you highlight in your book
1: and how did you get around to picking which ones uh, to to have in your book because i I, I know that there are quite a few
0: yes as a scientist you know this right there are quite a few um but we tried to focus on uh, three main issues we tried to focus on um phytoplankton and the importance of phytoplankton to our existence and to the health of the ocean and um with phytoplankton there of course is uh the warming temperature of the ocean and how that affects phytoplankton. We also talk with, in relation to the warming of the ocean about the melting sea ice in the Arctic and how that affects areas like Indonesia. Um, We talk about ocean acidification in both the Coral Triangle area and the Salish Sea in the Pacific Northwest. Um, To talk about these various scientific concepts, we relied quite heavily on uh, scientific experts. Uh, Meg Chadsey in uh, Washington State at the Washington Sea Grant was particularly important uh, in explaining ocean acidification to us. She took a lot of time with us and shared a lot of her resources and read the manuscript several times to make sure that we were accurate but um, shared how ocean acidification affects coral. And um, many people don't know this, but um, coral uh, is the the, the hard corals that we see that form these reefs that we love to look at when we're snorkeling and diving are actually tiny, tiny animals called polyps. And in order to um, stay alive and manufacture their hard, bony skeletons, they uh, they perform photosynthesis, just like phytoplankton would. And there's a, an, uh, an algae that lives inside them called zooxanthellae, and I absolutely had to use that word in the book, because what kid would not love to say zooxanthellae? <laughs> um, and we talk about how these zooxanthellae work. They, they provide about 90% of the food for a coral polyp. And without these zooxanthellae, if the water gets too warm, they leave the coral and find someplace cooler or, or they die. And um, without coral reefs, of course, we wouldn't have nurseries for fish. We wouldn't have those uh, biodiverse areas that support uh, coastal fishing um, and support livelihood and tourism. So that's one aspect that we look at. Another aspect that we look at for ocean acidification is um, the uh, salmon population in the Pacific Northwest and how ocean acidification affects salmon. So, we actually explain the chemical reaction that happens in the ocean when the carbon dioxide in our atmosphere drops into the ocean. Most people don't think about this, they think it just floats, the carbon dioxide just floats around in the air. But in fact, about a third of it drops into our ocean. And there's, a, there's quite a severe chemical reaction that takes place that's acidifying our water. And as the water acidifies, of course, it affects the ability of coral and shellfish to produce those hard, those hard skeletons or, or their shells. And um, it also affects salmon. Scientists are thinking that uh, the more acidified the water the more difficulty salmon might have finding their way home to spawn. And um, you probably know that in the Pacific Northwest, salmon is a major fishery um, that supplies the world. So if our ocean is becoming acidified and it's affecting salmon, then that's going to be affecting what appears on our dinner plates. So you feature quite
1: a few stories of really admirable people that you meet. So who are uh, some of them, and can you give us a glimpse into some of their stories?
0: Sure. We we feature uh, scientists, we feature kids and teens, and we also feature people, average people. And uh, the science, one of the scientists I already mentioned, Mag Ch- Chadsey from Washington Sea Grant helped us with ocean acidification. Nicole Helgeson uh, is a coral gardener. She's actually replanting coral in the uh, 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 coral triangle that has been damaged by fish bombing and um, ocean acidification or or war- the warming ocean. And um, then we've also featured Daria Akainak, who's a tur- Turkish scientist. She's brilliant. Um, and she's developed this new way of photographing creating underwater photographs but removing the water out of the photograph so scientists can actually count and see what's living on on a reef or in an underwater environment without sometimes murky water in the way um we feature um a photographer by the name of james Baylog, who uh established the Extreme Ice Survey and photographed uh, the disappearance of many, many glaciers around the world over a period of 13 or so years. It might still even be going on. But James was kind enough to talk to us about his work and and how nature is part of us. And the sooner we realize that, the easier it will be to begin thinking about protecting it. Another really interesting person we talk about is Stella Sung. She's a composer, but she was inspired to write a symphony called Oceana because she visited an an aquarium um, and learned a lot about uh, noise pollution, that, uh, you know, uh, sounding uh, for for oil and ships sounding Mm -hmm. for oil and how that interferes with the echolocation of uh, whales and dolphins. So she wrote this whole symphony and included uh, underwater sounds, both from the animals and uh, she mimicked underwater blasting through her instruments. And it's a beautiful, beautiful symphony. Some of the other people that we interviewed um, and included their stories in the book um, were indigenous peoples. So uh, we talked with with people um, in the Pacific Northwest who are members of the Lummi Nation. Um, one in particular is Dana Wilson. And he, he, we use their words in, in the book. We don't paraphrase, we don't um, describe, we, we let them speak. And he tells a story um, in his, uh, the home uh, coastal waters of the Salish Sea uh, he's a salmon fisherman and he tells this story about how salmon have shrunk over the years. Salmon used to weigh a hundred pounds. And now through the many, many generations of his family, all of whom were salmon fishermen, s- his son is now catching 10 to 15 pound salmon. And he's, he's sharing these stories because people need to know. People need to know how our habits are affecting the ocean. The same with um, the Inupiat people we spoke with in the Arctic, George Edwardson and Eben Hobson. Um, Eben is a a 20 something who is a filmmaker. He, when he was a teen, he was voted an Arctic ambassador and he uh, travels around the Arctic making films about how climate change is affecting his people. When we talked to George Edwardson who is an, an Inupiat elder he told us about what it was like when when he grew up and uh, what it's like now to hunt whales as an Inupiat, how they used to use whale uh, they used to use excuse me ice as land they used to walk far out onto the sea ice and then launch their uh, hunt from there but now the sea ice is not forming so they're having to use uh, powered boats to get out to eat where the whales are even swimming. So there are these profound changes to these people's lives. Um, we, we interviewed um, Angelique Batuna, who is a, a dive resort owner in Indonesia, and she's had to move her resort back away from the coast a couple of times because of sea level rise. That ice that is melting in the Arctic is affecting her within the Coral Triangle in Indonesia. So we're trying to share these stories of these these people um, to show how there are so many connections to our ocean, not just in our backyard, but far away from us. And then we then we kind of tie all these people together with the kids and teens because they are the hope all of these people are doing something to uh help protect the ocean but i i take the most hope from the kids and teens you know there's there's oji piper in the pacific northwest who um he says i'm not trying to uh uh change uh affect climate change i'm trying to affect human change and, and that's really what we're talking about. There's, there's Eben Hobson, who's making videos. There's, um, there's Abby, um, who made a video about the ocean and what it means to her. And we included it as one of our QR codes in the book. There's Elise, who uh, shared uh, being a diver and the experience of being a diver with us. There's uh, Khalil who went to the uh, Washington state legislature and spoke about what he sees underwater and how all of that trash impacts him. And he spoke very eloquently for bag bans and, and legislation to help protect the ocean. So this, (laughs) this book sounds like a cast of thousands, Mm -hmm. I know, but all of these people have stories to tell And it's stories that resonate with us as readers. And and it was important for Annie and I to share as many of these stories as we could, as we also talked about the science behind why the ocean is so important to us. And this leads
1: uh, nicely to my next question. So if we think about the bigger picture now, in what way the relationship with ocean shapes and is being shaped by the political, economic and also social forces of our day?
0: Oh, that's an interesting question. That's a big question. Um, I I found some in, uh, uh, an article just the other day. Uh, we were talking about the pandemic a little earlier in the show. And um, one way in which the pandemic has definitely affected the ocean is that... Over 52 billion, billion masks have been uh, manufactured for mm-hmm. us in the pandemic. All kinds of masks, including N95 and surgical masks. 52 billion. 1.56 billion of those masks have made their way to the ocean. And they take about as long to decompose or photodegrade. Um, as uh, plastic water bottles, 450 years is the estimate. So uh, the pandemic has affected the ocean drastically, in, in my opinion. Um, we stopped uh, bringing our bags to the grocery store. Uh, we we had to use pa- plastic bags again. The place where I recycle film plastic uh, stopped uh, providing that service. Um we uh, we became a nation of online orders, which required a lot more shipping and a lot more plastic packaging. Um, but I also think that there's I also think that there's some hope because, finally, the United States has a president that understands the science behind climate change and is working to change it. More and more uh, um, countries are signing on to the climate agreement, um, and, and, uh, vowing to make changes. Um, I live in California, which, um, is, uh, the, the, the city I live in Sacramento has pledged to go, uh, completely, uh, oil free by 2030. Mm-hmm. My Sacramento municipality, I can't even say this Sacramento municipal utility district. There we go. Um, is, is going oil-free as of 2030. So all of my electricity um, will be from natural resources, which I love to hear. You know, we have people like Boyan Slat, whose ocean cleanup is cleaning tons and tons of trash out of the river. We have other inventors who are uh, stopping um, trash at its source, at the mouth of a river before it enters the ocean. So we have we have changes that are being made there are there are people who are working on biofuels for uh to to uh power uh airplanes so we don't have to burn uh fossil fuel jet fuel and uh so there's a lot of hope but there's also a lot of work to be done and that's where planet ocean comes in and, and it helps us establish or reestablish this connection to our ocean. This, we can't breathe unless the ocean makes oxygen. We can't eat unless the ocean uh, gives us fish. Um, a lot of our medicines come from the ocean. We can't ship anything from Australia or China or Japan or Europe unless the ocean provides that waterway, um, a lot of our economy is, is built on the ocean. And I, I just feel like the sooner we internalize the importance of the ocean and learn to look at it with a sense of gratitude, if you will, um, the, the faster the change will come. And on the individual level,
1: uh, do you see change in attitudes towards ocean, especially in the younger population?
0: I do. Younger kids are ready to, younger kids soak up information like sponges and, and they're ready to make changes. They, they've they walked along beaches that are, are covered with plastic. Uh, many kids are diving now. You can dive as young as 10 years old. And many kids are seeing the plastic. Many kids, even graduate students who are, are, uh, doing research at sea, they've never seen a sea without plastic in it. Just think about that. It's it's mind-boggling to me. Mm. Um, I worked with a group of fifth graders not too long ago uh, during this pandemic. Uh, I was working with a another teacher, a teacher uh, education consultant, and they read Planet Ocean and they created a video, but in the middle of all of that. They they learned about um, ocean acidification and they learned about salmon in the Pacific Northwest and how ocean acidification is affecting them. They learned the chemistry behind ocean acidification through experiments that um, I have in the curriculum guide that goes along with my book. And then they did the most amazing thing. These fifth graders made a connection to a river near them, because that river is a place where salmon spawn. And they started to wonder, well, is this happening to my salmon? And that's the kind of connection that we're looking for. That is that that deep connection where they realize that if salmon are no longer able to spawn in their river, Then, what about the forest that I'm hiking through along that river? The salmon uh, provide marine nutrients that make that forest possible, that make those plants grow, that feed the bears and the, the deer and the elk. What about all of those things if salmon disappear? So, that connection was profound for them. Mm. It was an eye-opening experience. And that's that's what I want Planet Ocean to do for kids. So you would like to inspire more curiosity in uh, perhaps adults as well, isn't it? Right, exactly. You know, many adults will often pick up a nonfiction children's book to learn a little bit about a topic. Um, nonfiction children's books are, are often very focused And uh, rather than picking up a 400-page scientific tome, um, a nonfiction children's book is just bite-sized for adults. So it's a good place to start. But it's also a good thing to share with the children in your life, whether they're your children or uh, relatives or children in your community that you're volunteering uh, to help, or uh, whether when you volunteer in a school or a, a public library, share these things with the children in your life, so they understand that that they are important, and they can begin making their own decisions about how to how to speak for nature, how to shape their stories, how to figure out why nature is important to them, so they can become. Future leaders who make policy and, and make these, these important decisions that affect all of us become business leaders. Maybe they become business leaders who are, who are you know, not just out to make a buck, to kind of put it bluntly, but who also feel some responsibility to the planet for providing the resources that makes their business possible. And
1: what discoveries about yourself or society along your journey to writing Planet Ocean surprised you the most?
0: What discoveries? So this is a really good question. It's a hard question, though. There were a lot of different discoveries. I think the thing that that um, amazed me most uh, were the number of kids that were so passionate about helping the ocean we, we feature these kids from Indonesia who work with this woman named Helen um, and clean up their beach uh, every Sunday because every single day the tide washes tons of garbage onto their beach every day. And it's not garbage they're putting into the ocean. It's garbage that is coming to them from all over the world. And these kids are so passionate about it and they're out there every single week putting plastic into, uh, m- you know, marine debris plastic into garbage bags and taking these bags of garbage to their uh, their uh, waste recycling center mm-hmm. that turns this plastic into um, plastic filament for 3D printers and uh, manufacturing other, other goods that they can then sell in their gift shops in the various tourist locations around their town. Um, so just learning about things like that provide so much hope. When you're reading the science, the science, science feels dire. But then you talk to these people and all of a sudden your whole attitude shifts uh, you have you have hope and you have pride in what people are doing. Yes, we cause the problem, but we're also the solution. And uh, I guess it's that sense of pride in, in uh, my fellow human beings that was most surprising to me.
1: And this is such a beautiful message to take away as well. So it's
0: not all doom and gloom. Exactly, exactly. You know, there was a study done that... Kids are really beginning to feel the effects of, of climate change. There's a lot of climate anxiety in today's youth. And, you know, I don't, I don't write books like Planet Ocean or Plastic Ahoy or Sea Otter Heroes to uh, depress kids. I, I write them to sort of showcase the science, but also show them that there is hope. And if you establish this connection with nature, you are the hope and your friends are the hope and your parents are the hope. And everybody you share your message with is the hope. So do you have a
1: favorite and also the most feared ocean creature you encountered?
0: You know, I like this question, Galena, because I'm going to turn it on its head. Um, I, I love... Um, I love manta rays, not that they're fearful at all. They're very gentle and they seem to sail through the water. I also love sea turtles. I've done a, a fair amount of swimming with sea turtles, and they never cease to amaze me. But um, I'm gonna stop you when you when when we talk about a feared ocean creature because uh, there really are... Animals aren't inherently vicious. They do what they're programmed to do. Even sharks, you know, sharks are probably—they probably have the worst press out of any animal in the ocean. And uh, while I've uh, snorkelled above a shark, and Annie has swum with sharks, they're—they—they're um, they, they're not fearful to me. They're doing what they're programmed to do. They're following their instincts. And they, uh, I guess it's the media that's given them a bad rap and even the animals that we quote unquote say we fear, they have a place in the food web. Um, so for instance, uh, something like sharks, which, which, you know, they have all those rows of teeth and they, and they do look pretty scary, but without sharks feeding on the, the slow and the sick animals in the ocean, um, Things won't stay healthy and balanced, and and uh, w- they won't support life like they're supposed to. So we need to we need to stop. We need to stop, I guess, sort of victimizing certain animals in the ocean. Yes, some are creepy looking, and some are odd, mm-hmm. but you know those lanternfish that are in the deep deep sea that have that little bit of light or excuse me, the anglerfish that have that light uh, um, that's over their heads, they are very creepy looking, but even they have a a purpose in our ocean. And when we begin to understand what that purpose is, the fear and the, the creepiness sort of fall away, and the awe takes over. And That's what I'm that's what I'm really hoping to achieve with my books is to to inspire that sense of awe so kids can look beyond what they don't understand or what or what they're afraid of and uh, begin to appreciate it and marvel in it. Oh, that's so well put.
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project?
0: Um, I am working on a book right now called A River's Gifts. I, I can't seem to get away from water, I guess. Um, the subtitle for this book is The Mighty Elwa River Reborn. The Elwa River is uh, in the Olympic Peninsula in Washington state in the Pacific Northwest again. And... Um, it's been around for many, many thousands of years, and it nourished um, the indigenous people that lived there, specifically the lower Elwha Clallam tribe. Uh, salmon is a big part of who they are, both in terms of their diet, but also in terms of their songs and their stories and their culture. And then um, in, around the uh, 1800s, mid-1800s, late-1800s, Um, Settlers came to the area and uh, looked at the river as a potential source of power for electricity. So two dams were constructed on the river, one in about 1910, 1913, and one a little bit later. And uh, at the time, these dams, uh, even though they were supposed to provide uh, access for salmon to swim upriver to spawn, they did not. So slowly, slowly the, the salmon fishery began to die, and and with it the uh, lower Elwha Klallam people began to suffer as well, and the ecosystem began to suffer. Um, you know, for instance, bears weren't be able to fish for salmon in the upper parts of the river, so they they moved they moved away, and the plants along the riverbanks changed. Well, fast forward a hundred years, and the uh, Lower Elwha Klallam people, together with uh, townspeople and scientists and uh, people at the Olympic National Park and um, government officials, worked very, very hard um, and cooperated in in ways that are absolutely amazing to remove the dams. And now the ecosystem is reviving itself. And I love this story because it's one of the few happy conservation stories that we have. And uh, it's, just, it's just a tremendous, tremendous, um, I guess, again, pride in, in humankind that, that we would understand this to, to say, okay, we were wrong. We need to fix this. This book will be illustrated by Natasha Donovan, who lives in the general area. And she's, I I can't begin to tell you how wonderful her illustrations are. She's just now working on them. And I've seen a few color um, paintings, a few color spreads, and they're absolutely amazing. So this book comes out in the fall of 2022. And then you also asked, you know, how the pandemic was affecting me um, earlier in the show. I wrote, I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. So I have seven other books that are being submitted right now. And I'm hoping for a sale anytime soon. Oh, that sounds super exciting. I
1: hope you <laughs> come and talk to us again about your next books. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Thank you for that invitation. I'll be sure to let you know. And can you tell us? Uh, our listeners where they can find more information about your work and also your latest book Planet Ocean
0: well you can always find me um, on the web at patriciamnewman.com don't forget my middle initial m patriciamnewman.com um, i'm 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 all over the website and uh, i also run this i curate this blog series called lit links that uh, helps teachers um, find uh, connect STEM topics with literature. So there are uh, children's books that are paired with individual STEM and language arts lessons. It's it's quite a popular blog series. You can find Planet Ocean um, pretty much where books are sold. You know, typical uh, Amazon or whatever. But I'm I love to support. Uh, independent bookstores as well. So, um, bookshop.org, if that's available to you, um, any version of Amazon, um, Barnes and Noble. Um, but then of course you could also order it. So Planet Ocean, please share it with the children in your life. Well, thank you so much for
1: joining me today and for this truly inspirational discussion. Well, thank you for having me, Galena.
0: It's been a real treat to be here.